Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we speak with electrical engineer Catherine Yablikoff about creative diversity and how understanding it can make you a better engineer. We'll also talk about giant walking machines, messy mind maps, and maintaining an innovative balance. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 76, Creative Diversity, February 19th, 2015. So Brian, what's your engineering style? Well, I'd have to say it's uh, uh, every problem I run into, try to have four or five ways out of it. Uh, (laughs) Never never run into uh, the solution where you're totally locked into one solution or, or one potential solution or you're totally hosed. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's so it, more of a defensive strategy at some point. I was going to say, so you, you, you sound like you, you need, excuse me, you need a way out as though, as though each engineering problem were something that was trying to trap you as opposed to, you know, some sort of glorious challenge to be solved. Well, I prefer it as a, a each challenge is trying to murder my career. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, no, it, it is actually a lot of, uh, Especially the steeper the challenge, typically the more satisfying when you vanquish it. Right. Um, but uh, it's also the ones that tend to remove hair from the top of your head, keep you up at night, and uh, ruin every plane trip you have because you can't get access to the <laughs> internet at the speed you want. And you know, PDS just don't work well over airplane Wi-Fi, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and so, and so did it take you a while to develop this ability to not seize on your first idea and to spend a little time trying to develop plans B, C, D, and E? Well, do you know what? You know when you start to develop plans uh, B, C, D, all the way out to Z? Yeah. Um, when all of your first ideas fail. <laughs> um, okay, so it's not it's not advanced planning. You, you you come up with plan B once plan A has gone down? Oh, no, no, no. It's the first couple of times that plan D fail, and then yeah. you realize you need a lot of plans. You need a lot of potential <laughs> solutions. And in fact, it's it's often a exhaustive search to find alternate ideas that lead you to ways that you hadn't thought about doing it. Oh, your style is a lot different than mine. Uh, what's your style, Carmen? Immediately complain about out loud that it's not my job. <laughs> Why do I got to do this? Why can't uh, so-and-so fig- figure this out? If it was up to me, I would just collect paychecks and pull Costanza, sleep under my desk. <laughs> oh, it's it's uh I I feel that uh there's a limited number of problems in this life and uh you get points by uh stealing those problems from other people. <laughs> <laughs> of course, then again, my wife keeps cl- complaining about the receding hairline, so maybe that's uh not as advantageous as I thought. <laughs> Well, I think it's certainly true that uh, we don't all solve problems in the same way. I mean, you know, despite the fact that we're uh, we're engineers by training, we probably went through similar backgrounds. We each have our own personalities, and uh, so it's not unsurprising or unexpected that we have differing problem-solving styles. And it's certainly true that we're in a complex world where we're increasingly need to uh, needing to collaborate with others, and uh, therefore it might be important that we recognize how 
our problem-solving style differs from those of others. And uh, to talk with us about that in this episode, uh, we've invited uh, Catherine Yablikov. Is that close, Catherine? Very close. I'm proud of you. I worked on it all afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. We were inv- uh, our, our guest is Catherine Yablikov, an associate professor of mechanical engineering and engineering design at Penn State University. Dr. Yablikov's teaching and research interests include problem-solving, invention, and creativity in science and engineering, as well as robotics and computational dynamics. She's published over 60 peer-reviewed articles and books, and she is a member of the American Society of Engineering Education, a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, better known as the IEEE, and a fellow of the American Society of Mechanical Engineering. Catherine, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a real good time. Well, fantastic. Well, we normally ask our guests uh, this standard question, what got you interested in engineering? I thought it was your PIN number. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I think it wasn't so much what got me interested in engineering. First is what got me not interested in medical school, oh, which okay. was when Ooh. I found out that my, uh, yeah, both of my brothers went to med school. And when I realized that they were going to dissect cats, that was it. You know, that was it. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm not going to medical school anymore. Um, I I wanted to be a physicist at first. I thought I was going to be a physicist. And I got into my first quarter of physics, and I realized that they weren't going to make anything. (laughs) You know, they weren't going to make anything. (laughs) Yes, yes, they were going to make equations, and they were going to make assumptions, and... uh, I wanted to make stuff, and um, and so that's when my father was an engineering professor. Ah. And so, yeah, I, I, I find a lot of people, you know, a lot of engineers, I think, have engineering parents or engineering relatives. And uh, and so he kind of gave me a tour of, of the different departments, mm-hmm. and that's how I wound up in uh, electrical, was just it looked like that was the kind of stuff that I wanted to make and that I wanted to work in, and uh, and turned out to be a, uh, a good choice. Absolutely. And so what was it about electrical engineering that drew your attention? I think, I think it was the controls. You know, I, I've, um, I went to Ohio State and they had a, a really big controls group. And, and it was the idea that I could create things that would control what other things did. So <laughs> right? I, could, I could tell things what to do, you know, and they would have to listen to me. Um, and, and so I think, but I think it was that sense that I could, um, I could program things. And I was, I was already kind of getting interested in robotics. And um, at OSU, the robotics was really, really active okay. in the electrical engineering department. So that's where I started. Right. Now, is, uh, isn't Ohio a fairly big robotics hub in the U.S.? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it was, it was even, it was particularly big when I was in college, which the year will rename, remain nameless um, <laughs> so that I will not date myself unnecessarily. But, but at the time, OSU, we had lots of funding from the Defense Department. And we were building walking machines that would carry, you know, 2,000 pound payloads that were going to go out on the battlefield. So it was very, very cool projects. They were really big teams of engineers from all the different departments working together. And so it was a very strong program. Um, and I think it still is, but that was kind of its heyday. Right. Now we do, we did find a, uh, a YouTube video of one of the walking machines you worked on, I believe. 
So we, yes. can, we can post that in the, in the show notes. Yes, that, the adaptive suspension vehicle. Yep, that was, our, that was our baby. That was our baby. And so over <laughs> about how long a period of time was this vehicle uh, developed? It took about 10 years. Wow. Um, from start to finish because it was, you know, we were designing the hydraulics to run the thing. Um, we went through several different configurations of the legs. Mm-hmm. You know, was this going to be six legs or eight legs or, or what was it going to be? And, um, you know, in the control system. And then we, they wanted it to run in all different temperatures. And when it got very, very cold, it did not want to go. Mm-hmm. And so it took quite a few iterations before we could get it go get it going in all the different temperatures. And Ohio doesn't get all that cold, but um, yeah. that gave us some challenges. Is there somebody inside this thing? <laughs> yes, there's somebody driving it. Oh. <laughs> it looks like something out of Star Wars. It's pretty cool. Yes, this yes. is a godless killing machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, of course, they didn't tell us there were going to be any weapons on it. They just said it was going to carry, you know good things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was going to carry medical supplies and long pipes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I don't know what it was supposed to carry, but um, uh, personnel and, and various things. But um, but yeah, there's a there's a person in the front who's the driver. That's really cool. It was a great project. In, in that description, you mentioned uh, hydraulics and uh, leg mechanisms. That's, mm-hmm. a lot, that's a lot of non-electrical stuff for an electrical engineer. Was yes. W- so was it uh, a pretty uh, multi uh, multi field, multi dimensional uh, task that you you were assigned? It was. It was. I mean, I I think when I came out of my doctorate, I was probably as much a mechanical engineer as I was an electrical engineer. And and the same thing happened to the mechanical engineering students was they would have to go over to electrical and take a lot of courses. So I think there was a time when almost every grad student coming out of Ohio State in EE or ME was actually a mix of both. Right. And because uh, that project paid for a lot, a lot, a lot of education, a lot of different <laughs> students, you know, <laughs> right. the, uh, the government got a good value out of us. Um, but it was very multidisciplinary. And, you know, I guess that's kind of how I ended up at Penn State. I, I didn't get hired into the electrical engineering department. I got hired into the mechanical engineering department. Oh, but my degrees were in EE. So um, and to me, that's a strength. I think that's actually a strength. Mm-hmm. That that engineers can think about um, is making sure that you're not in such a silo when you when you finish your education that that you you don't have some extra diversity in your head. Right, right. We leave that for the PhD students to get so siloed they can't move yeah. into anything else. <laughs> That's right. They know one thing really, really well. Uh, Says exactly. our show doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what whatever became of this uh, mechanical beast? Well, that's actually a really interesting mystery. You lost and, it? And, and maybe, yes, oh, no, out there it. somewhere? We lost it, yes. So, so your listeners, you know, can, can maybe go out and see if they can find it. And if you um, do, run. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the uh, sort of the myth was, I'm not sure it was a myth, but about the time we got the project finished, the leadership at DARPA, who was funding us, changed, and the new person coming in, com- coming in liked helicopters. <laughs> and so all the funding for robotics kind of quit, and funding went into helicopters, and the machine got it – was it was still at Ohio State for a while. And then it got borrowed and moved somewhere, and to this day, I have no idea where it is. 
they just started to spin all six or eight legs real fast, so now it's an eight-blade helicopter. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I turned it upside down, and there you go. Yeah, that or it's serving drinks in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> One of those really tall hotels. Um, but... Are you confusing with R2-D2? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Now, Catherine, the other thing that, that uh, I mentioned in the introduction was that you had a interest in computational dynamics. And I know what computations are, and I know what dynamics is. What right. What is computational dynamics? Counting moving things. <laughs> really, really fast. Um, so, so when we were when we were building the robotics, and again, so I'm sort of dating myself. Um, that was back when when real time was kind of a dream. So, mm-hmm. real real time simulation was something that you imagined might happen someday. Right. And and so it was about looking at the algorithms that we would use to simulate the robot and to simulate the dynamics and the kinematics and making them really really efficient mathematically before you programmed. And, you know, you were literally eking out every multiplication and, and addition that you possibly could to make it run as quickly as possible. So it was, you know, you really had to understand what the variables were doing <clears throat> and where you could, where you could be more efficient. So it was, it was a lot of math. Right. But, um, my, that, that physics part of my brain that, that thought it wanted to be a physicist was, was very happy, uh, <laughs> working with the computation. Right. And, so a and so, of, a lot of coordinate transforms and yeah. Oh, okay. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of transformation and and um, um, screw theory, which was another way of of doing dynamics and kinematics really efficiently. Hmm. So um, yeah, cool stuff. I would enjoy going into uh, into it deeper, but I'm, I really know that uh, any doing any kind of multi body analysis. On a podcast, I think would would quickly put our entire audience to sleep. So now everyone can. We'll look at the free body diagrams and just describe them as accurately as possible to our listeners. Oh Lord! We'll we'll, we'll start by describing our six vector and uh, go from there. Yes, the end of uh, vector is through eight linkages. <laughs> You get to throw some cams in there just for good measure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you're doing this research in robotics. You're doing uh, some computational dynamics. You've got your your physics uh, mojo going. So what happened, Catherine? What led you into researching innovation and creativity? Oh yes, that's the long. What a long, strange trip it's been. Um, when I first, I'm thinking now. When I first got to Penn State. Um, it was, it was a time when a lot of research and engineering education was really kind of taking off. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of universities that were saying, well, we've been educating our engineers this particular way for a really long time. And it seems like it's, it was working, but now industry is telling us that it's, it's not working so well anymore. And in particular, the, the folks that hired Penn State engineers were telling us that the, the Penn State engineers really knew their they knew their math and they mm. knew their technical subjects, but they weren't good problem solvers, and mm. they weren't good communicators, and they weren't good critical thinkers, and they were concerned about their creativity. And so, uh, one of the Penn State alums actually gave the university a nice big check and said, 
we'd like to, you know, set up a center where we study engineering education and innovation in engineering education. And I was lucky enough that I came along to Penn State about the time that got started. It's called mm-hmm. the, the Leonard Center. And um, one of the first jobs they gave me was to go and look into the creativity literature and look into the innovation literature and say, so what do we know about creativity and what don't we know? And I spent probably about five years just sort of combing the literature, trying to figure out what we knew. And I went to lots of conferences. And in the end, I went down lots and lots and lots and lots of blind alleys, um, trying to find something that as an engineer, I could sink my teeth into that wasn't fluffy <laughs> right. and, and you know, sort of somebody dreamt this up in a bathtub kind of thing. I wanted something that I could, I could kick the tires scientifically and say, wow, you know, this is, this is sound. This is rigorous. Somebody really worked on this and, and got it right. Mm-hmm. And it took me about five years to, to find some things that, that met those qualifications. And at that point, I was pretty intrigued because I thought, well, okay. So what can we learn about engineers with this stuff? And discovered that there were actually other engineers, um, a lot of them in the military, who already knew about it and who already knew about some of the work that I was looking at and saying, yeah, we've actually been using this for a while. And that intrigued me even more. And I guess that kind of, that just got me kind of started to think that, you know, there was sort of this secret society of, of, <laughs> Of, of engineers who, who wanted to know about creativity, but were looking for, looking for something that really had some meat to it, mm-hmm. and um, and I've been I've been in, enthralled by it ever since. I like to think about how people think. Right. Well, so I came across your work uh, from a uh, article that was in ASME's Mechanical Engineering magazine back in 2011, uh, mm-hmm. titled "Engineering Styles," where you talked mm-hmm. a little bit about engineering problem methods or, or approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little more about how engineers go about solving problems? Oh, wow. So um, you, do you have six months? Um. <laughs> I don't think my hard drive will last that long. I don't have that much free space. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Well, then how about 60 seconds? Um, so there's, I think one of the things that that fascinates me about about the work that I had discovered was that you can actually think about problem solving. There's there's a, a number of variables that you can use, and they seem really obvious when you hear about them. But because engineers don't normally think about these kinds of variables, they they may sound unfamiliar at first. So when we talk about how engineers solve problems differently, first let's talk about how we do things the same. Mm-hmm. And so... If you go into how the brain works, so how cognition works, everybody's brain, whether it's you're an engineer or a firefighter or you bake cupcakes, it doesn't matter, your brain goes through fundamentally the same sort of functions when it's solving problems. And so, you know, one the, the job of one part of your brain is to choose which problems you're going to solve because there's all kinds of things around you and you can't do them all at once. So there's a there's a filtering function that your brain uses and it filters things based on things like your value system and your motives, what what drives you, what you believe in. And so that's one function that we all do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then once you've filtered it, there's another function that we all have that is figuring out the plan for solving the problem. And that covers everything from you know, sort of making a plan to um, carrying out and implementing it to iterating on it. So there's another function in your brain that's doing that. And then there's kind of the database function. So all of those things everybody does, mm-hmm. but there are different factors or characteristics that sort of define how those functions are carried out. And so we talk about um, problem-solving style or, or, or thinking style, which is one of them. Mm-hmm. And we also talk about level, which is your capacity. Okay. And we talk about motive and we talk about opportunity. And you can kind of look at all four of those variables and how they how they affect each of those different functions. So the article that you saw was one where I was talking about the style variable. And um, the style variable, it's like a cognitive preference. So your brain is wired and each person's brain is wired differently in such a way that you have a, a cognitive preference for how much structure you use in solving problems. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, in everything you do, you have a certain amount of structure. So some people's brains really prefer, you know, a lot of structure. They like to have things very well regimented. They like a lot of detail. They like things to be very carefully done. And that's, you can kind of imagine that as being one extreme. And then that preference for structure gets weaker and weaker and weaker or less and less. Right. Until you get to the other end of the continuum where you have people who you still have to have structure. Nobody can be completely unstructured. It, you, you couldn't survive. Mm-hmm. But the people who really their, their ideas are more porous. So the, um, the boundaries on their ideas are, are less solid. So things tend to um, be looser. They tend to be more flexible in how they define things. They're not as concerned with how much detail you have. And so that spectrum of preference is what thinking style is all about. So that article was focusing on imagining and thinking about engineers who have these different ways of thinking and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it possible to, you know, I know you said it's a, a spectrum of styles. Mm-hmm. Once you measure yourself and you come out as analytical or structure, is it possible to shift to the other end of the spectrum? Can you train yourself? You you can't change the preference. So it's kind of like you can't change the fact that you were born left-handed or right-handed or ambidextrous. But and you and you can never apparently change this this cognitive style. They they've tested it over time. But what you can do is you can you can behave in a way that doesn't match your preference. So just like if I'm left-handed, I can still do things with my right hand, but it's not as comfortable. Um, when it comes to your thinking preference, if I'm a very structured thinker, I could use particular techniques that would help me kind of simulate an unstructured thinking style or vice versa, but it would never actually change that preference. I can't rewire that, which to me is a, is a fascinating thing because there's so many things about our, our thinking we can change. To have something that you can't change and, and how we've actually survived and excelled as problem solvers with that, to me, is really fascinating. Yeah, that is that is pretty interesting. 
So if so if you were analytical and you know you wanted to simulate being innovative, you'd do maybe like a a brainstorming session or a mind map, something where like the format doesn't matter just to get you kick started. Yeah. Yeah, you you try you try a technique that is is you know less structured in some way that makes you perhaps think more tangentially, um, or you know causes you to to connect things that you wouldn't normally connect in your thinking because that's one of the things that you see people who are um, the the framework that I'm talking about was created by somebody Mike, named Michael Curtin. And it, he calls it adaption innovation theory. So I'll start using those words because then it makes it more convenient maybe. But We sound smarter um, too. We do, <laughs> you know, and we get these 25 cent vocabulary words into the, into the conversation, right? Um, the more structured thinking is called adaptive thinking and the less structured thinking is called innovative thinking. But there's no value judgment. So innovative thinking is not better than adaptive thinking or vice versa, um, which is kind of a, a problem where the creativity literature goes. Because a lot of the creativity literature would like you to believe that there are certain kinds of thinking that are better than others sort of across the board. But I think that as a practicing engineer, you, you look at the problems you solve and you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, there are times when I need this kind of thinking, I need I need to be tangential, and there are other times when I really need to dig down into the details. So it, it makes sense that that one isn't better than the other, but um, it's kind of a myth of creativity that's that's gotten started out there. So you know, you can, as a more adaptive person, look for techniques that'll help you simulate innovative thinking and, and vice versa. And that's actually some of the research that that we do is trying to figure out, well, which techniques then would you use in which case? And how would you, how do you make sure you're picking the right one? And so what implications does this have for, so I think of engineering problems and typically you want the creative engineer to come up with the outside the box, so to speak, idea, something that's revolutionary, radical, but that works. Mm -hmm. And, and to the point where it has to work, well, all of a sudden you have to spend lots of hours well, you know, from my background, mechanical design, we had to make sure you had, you had the right valve and you had the right fitting and you had the right hose and you called the right vendor who was going to supply it in time and you had mm -hmm. the right snap ring. And I'm sure that, you know, for other engineers and other fields, they have similar details. But but all of a sudden, you're having to come down to – so is there a connection between this this adaption innovative range and the willingness to sit there and, and crank through the details like you're doing a tough calculus problem? Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm actually going to sort of maybe twist your thinking a little bit. You, you mentioned the, a, a minute ago, you said you want the creative engineer to do one thing. And in Curtin's work and the way that we look at creativity now is that everybody along that spectrum mm -hmm. is creative. But there's this, there is a style of creativity. So your thinking ah. style determines the style of your creativity. So your creativity could be, that very out-of-the-box, tangential, revolutionary thinking. And that's one style of creativity. But this person you're talking about who has the, the, the preference to sit and really dig down into the details, we would call adaptive creativity. And that, if that's your preference, if that's the way that your brain is, is wired to work, then that's actually something you're very comfortable doing. Right. And so you can kind of think of the implications for teams, which it sounded kind of like where you were going. You've got the implication for there's this big project. And at one point in the project, we need to be um, 
you know, coming up with these these ideas that other people in the discipline or other people in the industry aren't having, but we have to make them work. Mm-hmm. And the same people who gave us the concept at the beginning may be not the person who's going to sit down and get this thing to work. Right. Is there a, a distribution along this spectrum or is it pretty evenly spread mm-hmm. between people who are innovative and adaptive? Or does everybody kind of just, you know, fall towards adaptive with only a few innovators or vice versa? Now, it's a big, beautiful, normal distribution. Um, so you've got and, – and we've got data. Uh, there's an instrument that you can use to measure this. So it's called the KAI, um, Curtin's Adaption Innovation Inventory. I've been using it in my class, in my classroom, and I've been using it in research for almost 20 years. And going back to what I was saying earlier, one of the things I like about it is that it's been very thoroughly kicked and tested <laughs> and, the, and the tires tested and it's got really, really strong statistics behind it. And um, Curtin and other people have done lots of, collected lots of data from around the world, all different cultures and all different disciplines. And interestingly, engineers are one of the disciplines that we have the most data for. And uh, that in management and in education. And so it's a, it's a big normal distribution. You've got very few people at the, at the far ends and lots more people in the middle. And with engineers in particular, the engineering distribution is only very, very slightly different than the general population, as it turns out. So you've got engineers who are all along that spectrum um, with most of them in the bell curve in the middle. So with most people, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to ask you, so out of curiosity, how are the engineers different? Well, I think in terms of, of style, we're not really different. Um, you know, I think it's, that's not the part that makes us different. Oh, okay. Um, in, in sense of comparing us to all the rest of the human race. Right. But, um, but what is interesting is that if you break down engineering into different types of engineering, Okay. So if you compare um, the manufacturing department in an organization and the R&D department in the same organization, that's when you're likely to see two different distributions. So you can kind of guess where would you expect to see, you know, if you were going to shift one more adaptive and one more innovative, where would you expect between manufacturing and R&D? What would you expect? I'd expect to see the adaptives in manufacturing and the innovators in R&D. Right. And so you still see normal distributions. So you still see, you know, innovative people in manufacturing and you still see adaptive people in R&D, but they're, but they're shifted. The, okay. the distributions are shifted along the continuum. And so that's when you see some really interesting differences. Hmm. That is cool. Yeah. And so earlier you mentioned level. How does this cognitive style interact with cognitive level? Well, they're actually independent, um, and, and not just theoretically, but it's another thing that we've got data on. So level is all about, um, both your potential capacity. So intelligence, okay. um, talent, um, things that they test on, you know, um, intelligence tests and SATs right. and things like that, you know, aptitudes and things. Um, and then it's also a measure of like experience or the knowledge that you've gained. So those are all forms of level. So what you know about electrical engineering or what you know about mechanical engineering is level. And that's totally uncorrelated with style. So I can know 
So if I meet somebody and they say, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really kind of a novice at electronics, but I have a whole lot of experience with, with mechanics, I can't say anything about their style. I have absolutely no idea from that information. Hmm. Um, you get equal distributions with that. And, um, and so that, you know, it kind of explains the diversity of the human race and the diversity of our discipline, the fact that you've got people with knowledge and experience in all different kinds of engineers that could be more structured thinkers or less structured thinkers. Right. Right. So does the, does the overall, I mean, if you, if, if these are uh, basically perpendicular axes, if they're independent, mm -hmm. then they're, you know, is the distribution kind of a normal, a three-dimensional normal distribution yeah. that you're looking at? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Imagine the mountain in the middle, you yeah, know, okay. sticking out of the page at you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and for all our training, the engineers are no different than the general population. Not very much. <laughs> no, no. It's kind of, you know, maybe disappointing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of kind of positive because it means we can solve everybody's problems, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we just need the level, right? What we have is different level right. than everybody else. We know about different things and we have different training. Um, I think one of the powers of our discipline is that we're trained from the beginning in how to think about anything, just right. how to think. We, we get processes about how to figure things out. And in many disciplines, I think that's not as, not emphasized as much right. as what we get. So with, you know, with everybody falling on the spectrum, you know, kind of in the middle between, uh, analytical and innovative or adaptive and innovative, and then mm -hmm. as you break everybody down, there's slight shifts, but it's all still a nice normal distribution. Is that where we kind of get the, uh, you know, the expression? I usually hear about it in like poetry or art, but I guess engineering too, where you have to know the rules before you can break them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I've even heard that used, um, in the, the, the Marines. Um, I have a colleague who teaches leadership at the uh, Naval Academy to the Marines and he says, we teach, them how to think in the box so that they'll know when to break out of it. And, and I think that with engineering, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just go start designing an engine if you don't know about entropy or, you know, dynamics. Right. Right. And, and then, you know, you figure out when, um, the way that you've been designing that engine isn't working anymore. Yeah. I think the good thing about learning about what we're talking about now is that you think, okay, so why should I keep beating my head against the wall? I realize that I've gotten to a point where this, whether it's a more innovative approach, more adaptive approach, it's not working anymore right now. So why don't I go to some other place on the spectrum and try something there mm -hmm. and see if it'll, if it will work better. I'll go find somebody who thinks differently than I do and see what they suggest, yeah. or we'll put our heads together and do it. That's how we got refrigerators. Yeah, you can't you can't reduce entropy on the scale of the universe, but you know, if I, if I just look at this little box here, sure, why not? Sure, I can keep my beer cold, exactly. you know, and that's all I need. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> In July, I like the outside to be cold. Come on. Well, okay. We're still talking about from the beer's perspective, though. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. You just heat up other places. <laughs> <laughs> so, Catherine, you had mentioned in your, your description of this uh, creative diversity that there were some other factors of uh, motive and opportunity. So, how do those two yeah. variables play into the whole scheme of things? Um, 
So let's go back to um, the engineer who is supposed to solve this problem, and that problem, um, based on the constraints of the problem and based upon, say, competition in the marketplace and based upon what her boss wants, um, she needs to come up with a solution that's, let's say, moderately innovative. And that's not the way that she normally thinks. Her preference, let's say, is mildly adaptive. And so she's going to have to find ways to, to simulate this other way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that helps you to do that and that you actually you have to have is, is, is extra motive. So your brain, it's like the path of least resistance. You know, my brain spends the least energy if I can think in the way that I prefer. But if you're going to ask me to think in some other way, it's actually cognitively harder for me. And the only way I'll do that is if you you provide a reason or I provide a reason for myself. So motive is is very, very important in getting you to use what's called coping behavior, um, which basically just means I'm going to think in a way that isn't natural for me. And if you don't have the motive or if the motive runs out, you won't do it anymore. Right. Right. And, but can this, uh, you know, can this motive really be, it would seem to me that any kind of extrinsic type of motivation doesn't work. You say, well, I'm going to pay you more. I, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen reports that say uh, the, the promise of money actually decreases creativity. Right. Right. Or you say that I'll give you a, I'll, I'll give you a promotion. Right. Uh, and, but. It would seem to me that for this motive to work, it's got to be something inside you that says, well, it's not the – there's something about pride or there's something about I want to achieve or there's something about I want to change my life or I want to see life in a different way that makes me want to do – to take on this challenge that is cognitively difficult. Right, and and you're absolutely right. Um, they talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation inevitably from, from what we know, it, it takes you farther – You'll follow it longer. Um, it's more intense. So extrinsic motive may get you may get you through or over a little bit of a hurdle. But to do something really difficult for yourself, there's got to be some sort of intrinsic drive. It may be I just w- I want to do a good job, mm-hmm. um, or I don't want to let these people down, right? Or um, you know, like you said, I have pride in myself, or I have pride in my work, or I have pride in my company, or pride in my team. And that does seem to to be more powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm motivated by less emails. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I yeah. talked earlier. My first my first instinct is to say this isn't my job. So yeah. <laughs> when I go to write a data sheet or a reference design, you know, if I do a really good job, maybe no one will email me asking for help. So let's just put all this extra extra information in there. Whatever works. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, oh, and then you were asking about opportunity, yeah. right? That was yeah. the last one. So, opportunity is is more about um, the different ways that we recognize or don't recognize things. So, you know, our problem solving is is somewhat affected by the fact that you may put something may cross your desk. And you look at it and you go, oh, my gosh, you know, this is great. This will allow me to do X, Y, or Z, or this will help our team, or, or here's something that will help with the solution. And the same thing crosses my desk, and I don't recognize it. 
So you've got whether people perceive an opportunity or not, how sensitive are they? How, how, how much are they looking for things? Mm-hmm. You have people who are like oblivious <laughs> to, to things that are passing in front of them and other people who are really sensitized to it. And you can learn, you can learn to look for things. Um, and then sort of, even if I recognize that it's there, do I do anything with it? And if I do something with the opportunity, how, kind of matured am I? How advanced am I in knowing how to manage that opportunity? Do I, do I take something and I pick it up and I run with it once and mm-hmm. then that's it? Or do I look for it and say, now, how would I recognize this again? Do I learn from my experience? And if I'm really savvy, I may say, well, not only is that a really good opportunity for me and not only am I looking for more of them, I'm going to go create I'm going to go create that opportunity for myself. Right. So, you know, I worked on this project and it went really well. I'm not just going to go look around the company to see if there's another one. I'm going to go ask my boss if I can sort of, you know, manage and manipulate things so that I can create another opportunity like that for me or for my team. Right. So, so that's how opportunity f- sort of folds into the problem solving. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that these these last two, again, are sort of orthogonal to level and style. They're all independent yeah. parameters. Yep, they are. They are. And and so I guess we all fall somewhere in this distribution amongst these many axes, it, sort of uh, widely distributed. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, just I think that just having that framework to think about yourself – as an engineer and, and how you, how you function and how you solve problems. I find it, and, and so my students tell me anyway, very helpful in just sorting things out. Where am I in my career? Where am I in my work? Where am I in this project? Mm-hmm. Um, why is my team struggling? Why is my team struggling, but I'm not? Or why am I right. not struggling, but they are? Or, you know, it, it helps you break things down instead of just sort of being confused and throwing up your hands and saying, I don't know how to, I don't know how to get through this tough spot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is there any distinction to be drawn between innovation as a cognitive style and innovation as a process? Yeah. And that's actually a really important distinction. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the word gets used in both ways. And that's fine. You know, we, we are we use lots of words in multiple ways. But it's important just to, to, I guess, to make sure you're clear about which way you're using it. So if you're talking about innovation as a process, it's almost, you could almost substitute problem solving for the word innovation. If you look at the stages of innovation as people normally describe them, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some kind of discovery phase and there's some kind of development and there's some kind of implementation and all that. You could, you could also think of that as problem solving or as invention or you could use lots of different words for that process. Sure. And innovation as a style, as we've been talking about, is just one particular way that a person's brain might work within that process. But there are a lot of other different ways that somebody's brain might work within that process. So as long as you keep them separate, it's fine. Okay. Well, I sort of have this mental image of innovation as being a very messy process, as d- despite our planning. Uh, uh-huh. You know, you, you start out in any type of really, if it's really innovative, you're going to go down a lot of dead ends before you get yourself, you know, on track and get mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. And my thought was, if if you're adaptive and you tend to think of somebody as being innovative and you immediately assume that 
what that means is they have a messy thought pattern or they're not precise in their mm-hmm. thoughts that that's, that might not be the right, uh, uh, the mind, right mindset. Right. Okay. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a place where people do get confused. So we've actually, um, I'm working with some folks at Purdue and okay. we just interviewed, um, close to, 50 or 60 expert engineering innovators. So these are people who have been recognized as engineering innovators by their peers. Right. And um, this was someone's PhD dissertation. And these were really in-depth interviews to try to find out what are the key characteristics of someone who is successful, an engineer who is successful at the innovation process. Okay. So forget style, but successful at the innovation process. And the research came up with 20 different characteristics. And there are things like, um, you know, market savvy, um, knowledgeable. There, there's all kinds of curious. There's all kinds of characteristics. And what's interesting is that when we, we did some, some further investigation to find out, does, do you need all 20 of those all throughout that? process that you were talking about as messy right. as innovation and what these experts were telling us was no you don't you don't use the same sets of characteristics in the messy part as you do later on in the in the more structured part and when you look at those combinations of characteristics mm-hmm. they match up with the style spectrum interesting so it's like in the in the early messier parts of innovation it may be that the more innovative style people feel more comfortable right but later on in the process they feel less comfortable right well they get bored so it, <laughs> they get bored exactly they absolutely they do you know they do it's like oh man come on you know um but the more adaptive folks in the later stages of that innovation process are like oh, finally Finally, it's my turn. <laughs> yeah. So right. do you see, uh, you know, the, the school itself or the university producing one type of engineer over another? Uh, does it, does the system tend to favor an analytical style, you know, with the current curriculum or is it, is it more innovative? I think it probably leans towards the more adaptive side. Um, in the undergraduate years anyway. I think as you get into graduate school and you're doing more more research based learning and and you're sort of getting out in the borders of things that are a little bit less known, it's de- it, it tends to get more flexible. But at the same time, you see a lot of universities now introducing entrepreneurship programs into engineering education. And if you look at those programs, they're leaning more towards the innovative end. So it's like they're kind of balancing themselves out. Um, not, not in every class, but overall, Mm -hmm. they're balancing themselves out a little bit. And I think that's good. I think it's good for engineering education. And they're actually thinking more about things like style and about cognition in the design of engineering curricula than they ever used to do, which I'm really happy to see. What a time to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) What a time to be an engineer. (laughs) Um, I totally blanked on my point. <laughs> Great A radio right here. Well, well, so let me jump in. Uh, so now that we have a little background with this this concept of uh, creative diversity, mm-hmm. what does that tell us? So if, if I'm a – let's say I'm a young engineer 
fairly early in my career, and now I recognize that I have a style and other people may have differing styles. Mm-hmm. What, what, how does that affect how I should interact with others, how I might work to uh, encourage others or, or work to improve their, uh, their efforts, their output? Mm-hmm. What, what can I do with this information as a young engineer? I think one, well, one of the things that I tell my students is when you're interviewing, mm-hmm. you can ask, you should be asking some different questions as you interview the employer, as you are looking for the job that's right for you. So if, if you know that you are, um, someone with, you know, a more structured, a more adaptive style and they say, well, you know, what we, re- what we really need on this team is somebody who's going to, um, burn bridges as they go and really come up with radical stuff and no holds barred and all that. You may think, well, you know what? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure I'd be really happy in that position. Maybe I know the engineering content, but doesn't sound like they want my strengths. Sure. Um, so I think in, in interviewing and looking for positions, being, being cognizant of, of these preferences can, can save you from, you know, the job from hell, right. um, from your perspective. And when it comes to, you know, say you're in your job and you're trying to figure out how to work with your colleagues better, it can help you everything from, um, well, how should I write memos to my boss? You know, if I can get a sense of what my boss's style is compared to mine, you know, do I need to add more detail because that's what he wants? Right. Or do I need to kind of, you know, forego the detail and show him how radical this is, even if I don't think it is, right. because that's what he's looking for. Yeah. So communicating with people. So, it, you know, really in your day-to-day actions with your team, it I think it keeps you from looking at your teammates and going, oh, my God, what a jerk. Right. And and say, no, this person, I mean, they may be a jerk, but let's hope they're not. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're actually somebody that just thinks very differently from me. And how is that going to be valuable to me? Because, gosh, if they really enjoy doing something that I hate doing. Right. Wow. How cool is that? Um, but I've got to, but I've got to, you know, be able to communicate with that person so that we each kind of get to do the thing that we like the best and do the least of what we don't enjoy. So it's all kinds of, of ways of managing those relationships with, with your problem solving and with your peers. Mm -hmm. And, and do we have a tendency to misinterpret the abilities of others with different cognitive styles? Yeah, I think we, we have a bad tendency to look at people who are differently, who are different from us mm-hmm. and figure that the differences are all due to a lower level. It seems to be a, a sad, a sad okay. fact of humanity you, that we look at somebody and we think, um, well, you know, I like to think really revolutionary thoughts and you don't. And that's because you can't <laughs> rather than that's because that's not the way your brain prefers to work. It likes to work this other way. And so we tend to say it's because you're not able, you're not capable of it when it's just that's that's not you're capable, but you'd have to put all that coping energy in. And why would you do that if you didn't have to? Right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's we can get real pejorative about each other. And right. um, that doesn't help anybody. No. And, and let's say you've uh, moved up the ranks and you start to become an engineering manager. Now, what does this this understanding of cognitive diversity do for you? We actually teach 
this in our engineering management program at Penn State. So we have a graduate degree in engineering management. And what we have students do and our engineers do is to kind of match up um, the people to the problems that they have to solve. So one of the things you can start to do is say, which part of the problem has which characteristics and who's the best person on the team to solve that part of the problem. So rather than just kind of randomly assigning people, you're better at making that alignment or better at making that match. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's not just about warm fuzzies. Let's all get along, you know, and hold, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It's, it's, are we getting the problem done? Are we getting the work done? And if I can get the right person on the right part of the job, then we'll be more effective as a problem solving team. And I think that that's one of the biggest powers of, of what we can do. Right. Right. In one of the papers or, or presentations you gave, you talked about the person to uh, problem gap. You talked about a person problem gap and a person person gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you, you know, kind of distinguish and contrast those two? Yeah. So, so imagine you've got a team um, of engineers and you're working on a, on a pretty complex problem. And that problem's got a lot of different requirements. Yeah. A lot of different things that have to get done. And some of those things require mechanical engineering and some of them require electrical and some of them require computer knowledge and some of them require materials. And on my team, I've got people with, um, with all of those different abilities plus others. And then some of the problem requires some adaptive thinking and some requires some innovative thinking. And likewise, in my team, I've got people with, with different styles of thinking. So the person to person gaps are, the differences among the team members. Right. So you're adaptive. I'm more innovative. I know engineering man, um, mechanics and, and you know, electrical engineering. And we've got to, we've got to manage those gaps. We've got to make sure that, you know, we're seeing each other as equally valuable and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the differences between what our team is capable of doing and what the problem requires, that's the person to problem gap. Okay. And so, you know, the tricky bit is I may have the people that match the problem, but in order to do that, they may actually be really different from each other hmm. or vice versa. I get people who are very similar to each other, but then they don't match the problem. Right. So it's like there's this optimization thing going on that which engineers are, you know, we're used to thinking about optimization. But here you're optimizing people versus the requirements of a problem and people getting along and working with each other at the same time. Right. Right. Okay. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about, uh, you know, a little bit about industry, a little bit about school. Um, what happens if, like, an industry in it itself gets caught in a rut and say, uh, like, two examples I've read about, you know, like the battery industry, um, Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're making incremental advancements in battery, but there's no real big breakthrough that gives us phones or cars with just these huge capacities that can run forever. Um, and then the other one is, you know, kind of like f- the physics industry in and of itself. You know, we kind of filled in the standard model and there's a few loose ends, but any theories we have now are kind of pretty pie in the sky and we don't really have a good way of testing them yet. And we seem to have exhausted you know, what, what the analytical or uh, adaptive thinkers can do. Um, mm-hmm. And not that there's not innovative people there ready to do, but there's just so much momentum 
how does how does an industry kind of turn itself and allow these innovators to maybe take charge and you know risk potentially billions of dollars in the case of something like the LHC or you know your your company's financial well-being uh you know how do you how do you balance the risk versus reward of of trying to get both styles of engineering there or right or just thinking well i think if I think if you if you look at some of the the companies that have been able to successfully overcome those times is they'll often have that kind of that skunk works mentality too where you've got you do let you do take some of your innovative thinkers and you do give them some free reign but they don't get all the eggs you know they they don't get they don't get to control everything because you're the, the risk is is more dramatic if if what they're trying to do breaks but it's a balance between how far and how fast you let them run while the more adaptive part of your organization is keeping bread on the table, you know, is keeping the, the, the structure that, that keeps you going from day to day is, is still going. So it's a, it's like a balance that's, that has to constantly shift over time as your, as your discipline changes, as, as technology changes. It's almost sometimes like I think the, the more innovative side of the business is waiting you're almost biding your time until that that piece of technology that's going to help you turn the corner appears somewhere. And the problem is, it doesn't always appear in your industry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a tool, or it's a it's a program, or it's an analysis technique, or it's a material, and people don't realize the implications of it instantly. And the more innovative thinkers in your company are the ones who will spot that. Because they're looking around outside. That's where they look. But at the same time, you need your more adaptive thinkers to be making sure that um, the company isn't tanking while those innovative thinkers are looking. So you, you, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge challenge to keep that balance going. And I don't think there's a magic formula, unfortunately. Um, trial and, and I think it's different. And different. Learning trial from the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, but what you don't want to do, I guess what you want to avoid is kind of a pendulum effect. So you don't want your organization to be dramatically adaptive and completely shut out the innovative thinking and then suddenly swing, you know, wildly over to uh, a case where, you know, the adapters all get shot. <laughs> and, and you've got the, the, the innovators who are, you know, okay, now we get to run and, and, and party with the company and, and really do crazy stuff. And then suddenly you realize that, well, gosh, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So, yeah. you know, let's crank down on the structure and, and the constraints again and swing back to the other side because that's when you definitely go nowhere. You just go swinging back and forth, but you don't make any forward progress. Yeah. Yeah. I think going back to my example, I think that's kind of like, you know, it's from my reading, this is just a personal interest of mine is like the physics industry, you know, the early 19th century, 20th century, there's all these big advances and, you know, now we've kind of caught up and we're, we, we don't really know where to go anymore. <laughs> so, right. And and we're probably waiting, you know, in a way, do you think, do you think we're kind of in like a, a, a little bit of a holding pattern, kind of waiting for a discovery? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhat. Um, I know that was one of the, the things I read about the, you know, the Higgs boson uh, announcement two years ago now almost. Jeez. Uh, wow. And they said, you know, one of the most interesting things for physics would be if 
we found something just entirely new that we didn't expect because it would just open up all these avenues where if it hit dead on the money with what we predicted, then we don't really know where to go from there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. And we kind of got an in-between uh, answer and some twist of fate there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite what the math said, but it wasn't completely far Dang, off either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did we get this wrong? <laughs> Someone missed a minus sign somewhere. Yeah, the battery was low in their calculator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as a, you know, a company or an individual, uh, you know, going back to the small scale, you know, as they, they try to adapt to all these different styles and learn who they are and how to interact with the other styles, um, you're not always successful and you're going to have some failures along the way. Are there certain things you can, you can take from your failures that would help you grow as an engineer? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... I think is I don't think it matters what style of an engineer you are or or anything. I think if part of our discipline is 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 learning from failure. Mm. And you know, there's a certain wisdom in failing fast and smart. Um, you know, we talk about intelligent fast failure, but I think that can look different. I think where the cognitive stuff comes in is that 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 failure looks different for different styles. And as long as you accept that, that, you know, somebody really is, they really are experimenting. It just, maybe it doesn't look like they're experimenting to you, Mm -hmm. um, that then we can all learn. So, you know, someone who's more innovative, they may, they may fail really dramatically, you know, (laughs) kaboom kind of failure. Oh my God. And, and, and it's flooding and, and everything. Walking robot um, gains sentience. (laughs) (laughs) Your oh rocket, my God, there it goes. Your rocket plowed into the barge that it was supposed <laughs> to land on. And there's six of them, you know, it, it procreated in the, in the, <laughs> in the lab. Um, that looks different than the more adaptive failure, which may be, you know, there's a detail of precision and, and they lost precision on something. But to that person, that's failure. And they learned something from that. And we can learn from failures of, for lack of a better word, of opposite types. So, you know, I can learn from innovative failure even if I'm not innovative, and I can learn from adaptive failure even if I'm not adaptive. And I think it's just maybe learning from failures that we're not we're not familiar with is where we could broaden our thinking. But everybody's going to fail, my gosh. And, you know, not learning from it is would be the really stupid thing. Agreed. <laughs> So separating the process innovation from the cognitive style innovative, we, we're talking a little bit about innovation in industries and, and failure. And I'm, I want to go back to this whole idea of innovation is messy. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me innovation creates a lot of change and a lot of uh, turmoil sometimes. But everybody talks about, well, we need more innovative thinkers and we need more creative thinkers. But my question is, do companies and managers really want innovation? Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've seen at least occasions in my career where somebody would try to be innovative and pr- they would get pretty quickly stomped down because that was going to cause, you know, in order to a- a- adopt mm-hmm. that change, it would cause the organization to have to make changes in the way they're either their procedures or their market or what they're thinking about. There's no money for and it. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so, I'm not saying that that uh, all companies are bad. I'm not saying that innovation is good or bad. I, you know, everybody has their own rational reasons and their own style. 
but I, uh, you know, we hear all this clamoring for we need more innovative thinkers, and I'm not sure that uh, companies and managers always want what they're asking for. Or is that another way of saying it? Everyone wants innovative thinkers that just don't want to pay for them. Well, maybe. <laughs> they don't want to clean up after them. <laughs> right. Or, or, or it's, you know, you don't, uh, when's the last time you've tried to open a requisition at a company and your justification of management was, I want something I don't even know what they're going to do. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. t- typically you're opening that rec because, look, we've got a backlog of X amount of procedural work and I need more bodies to do this. Yeah, or you, you request a piece of equipment or to go to a conference and say, this could pay off someday. <laughs> right. I, th- I think you're right, Jeff. I think there's a romanticism sometimes to the notion of, um, you know, we want innovative thinkers. Mm-hmm. And people say it because it's become the trendy thing to say. It's become the buzzword. You know, we want out-of-the-box thinking. If I hear one more person say that in my class, you know, I'll probably throttle someone. It's like, <laughs> right. what? I mean, in-the-box thinking is perfectly fine a lot of the time. And and when you say out-of-the-box, it's sort of this glib phrase. And so is we want innovative thinkers. And I think we kind of lose – by just throwing it around, we've lost a sense of, well, when do we really – when do we want it? Mm-hmm. Because there are times when you do, and there's times when the company really does, and they and they are willing to invest. But it isn't going to be every time. Yeah, during the the weekly staff meeting. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, let's all let's all you know take our shirts off and paint our torsos blue. I mean, that's very innovative. <laughs> does that work? Of any value? <laughs> you, know, you know, really? Um, Maybe the paint's supposed to be glow in the dark. I don't know. <laughs> I know, you know, but but. Um, so I think I think part of the problem is is you know I don't want to blame it on the media but it's it's like the popular parlance is we need innovative thinkers and we say it without thinking about what we really want at any particular time and if we were more careful about what we said then right. maybe when we did say we want innovative thinkers we would people would say yeah yeah okay you're right we do right um I think that's part of the issue we have okay well, and so if um, if our if our cognitive sti- cognitive style is sort of predetermined and mm-hmm. we can't change it, is there are we able to learn to be innovative? I mean, I see I see techniques like uh, trees and uh, sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me try to remember what that was. That was uh, systematic inventive thinking. Thinking, right? Yeah. Uh, so, do these things work? Yeah, they work. They work. They, they're, it's kind of going back to, um, I'm going to teach myself something that helps me simulate something that I, I don't normally do. And we're incredibly powerful as a species to learn how to do things that we don't normally do. Okay. Um, and to think our way out of problems that we created. So, you know, we're really good at that. We create a really, you know, difficult situation in the world and then we start thinking about how we're going to solve it. And, um, so you can, you can teach yourself and it's probably, it's, it's not probably, it's a really good idea to have what I think of as a toolbox. Mm-hmm. So I've got my toolbox of creative problem solving techniques and some of them are really structured and some of them aren't. And some of them have to do with, um, visual thinking and some of them have to do with very quantitative and some of them are qualitative and I purposely you know, go out and, and collect techniques and methods of different kinds 
so that when I'm in a particular situation, I, I can, I have something to choose from. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant learning process. Um, you know, I was a latecomer to trees. I didn't find out about it until, you know, sometime in the last 10 years. And there are people saying, well, gosh, this has been around for a long time. And I went, holy moly, right. you know, this is a really powerful way of doing things. And, but it's not a way that I would normally have approached a problem. Right. And, and, and we should probably back for those who have not heard of trees before, which I used to pronounce as triz before I figured out that it was pronounced differently, T-R-I-Z. And it's a Russian acronym for a process of um, so that the gentleman who started it, my understanding was went through past patents, Russian patents, and saw this pattern of development in various areas and sort of came up with the thinking process to spur innovative thought. Is that a yeah roughly accurate description? Yeah, it and it takes you know you look at general solutions and then you spin off more specific you know manifestations of general solutions and it's got it's got a lots of, of tools within it, lots of different um, principles and things you can use. There are software packages that people have developed. Um, I've got colleagues that use it to break patents okay. um, of, of other of uh, competitive companies. It's very powerful at breaking patents, apparently. Okay. So um, that I what think What do you mean is, by breaking patents? So working around your competitor's patent. Hmm. Creating your own patent to do something and and working around theirs, it's apparently very powerful at at breaking down um, the the claims of your competitor's patent and figuring out how you can you know make a necessary change or shift so that you can get your own patent. Hmm. And there are consulting companies and software packages that are set up to help you do this. Invention machine is the one that's coming to mind, but I know there's a, a number of them. Interesting. Yeah. I don't have any patents myself, but <laughs> if, I, people who do say apparently have, have been very successful at using that. It works. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm told. Terrific. Terrific. Well, if you're not uh, innovating on the patent side, I do know that you've been uh, innovating somewhat on the uh, the education side. You were recently involved in a, uh, a MOOC, a massively open online course mm-hmm. uh, titled Creativity, Innovation, and Change. And this wasn't just a small little course for 20 people. Uh, apparently, you had like over 150,000 enrollees. Yes, we did. So so how did that go? <laughs> She's still grading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, I ran out of gold stars. You know, it was wow. really... I, I bought out. Uh, I bought out AC Moore. Yeah, the pile um, of red pens is just, yeah. just to the ceiling. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, we actually have run the course twice. Okay. Um, the first time we had over 150,000 people, and the second time we had 60,000. And um, we're running the course through Coursera, and we're actually getting ready to put it in what's called an on-demand format, which means it will always be live. Wow. Um, it will never turn off, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a little frightening, to say the least. Um it, yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's been, it's been an absolutely incredible experience. Um, both because we're very passionate about the material and right. creative diversity was just part of it. Um, intelligent fast failure. So what we were talking about a little while ago about the, you know, learning from failures. That was, um, one of my colleagues, Jack Matson at Penn State. That's been something he's, he's passionate about. And entrepreneurship was part of the course as well. And it was, um, you know, our, our purpose 
was really just to reach out to to people around the world and get them thinking about some of these basic principles of of creativity and of you know the innovation process and things like that because so we, we it was not about you know tests and quizzes and getting the answer right it was about learning learning activities mm-hmm. you know so so getting involved in failure what does it feel like to do to do failure right. what does it feel like to estimate your creative style what does it feel like to come up with a, an action plan or a business plan and um you know, we were we were blown away by the response. Um, there were 195 countries represented in those 155,000 people. Yeah. And in the second run of the MOOC, we had more Chinese students than we had American students. Hmm. And so, you know, what we're what. What's fascinating to me is looking at the differences in the way people learn and think um, on a global scale. You know, mm-hmm. right. I, I, I'm used to classes of, of 30, <laughs> 30 engineers right. in my classroom or a team of 15 when I go work in industry. And, and now I'm talking about looking at, at you know, data sets of 5,000 people or 25,000 people mm-hmm. and to me, that's one of the really amazing things about MOOCs is how we can learn about how people learn. Right. And um, so we're were there, actually, were there any, no, go ahead. Th- so were there any real insights from the data you got back from the first couple of uh, courses? Well, we did actually do um, just an estimation of mm-hmm. creative style. So sure. we, we couldn't use the official instrument because that costs people money and the MOOCs right. don't cost you anything. Yeah. And, um, we we had a global normal distribution wow okay of styles so across all different disciplines so these were not all engineers by any stretch of the imagination you've got people from all different disciplines you've got you know men and women you've got people of all ages you've got people of of all different educational backgrounds and we got this huge um this huge variety of creative styles and then we split it up country by country mhm and we're still looking at country by country, but from what we can tell, the distributions from country to country are almost the same. Wow. So, like, because we were, we were thinking, are there going to be cultural differences? And so far, we're not seeing any dramatic cultural differences. So, that's, we're, we're really still digging into it. When you've got that many data, it takes a, <laughs> it takes <Right>. a while <laughs> to do the analysis. But, um, but that, that was kind of an eye opener to us that this, that the same things we're talking about with engineers in the United States is something that, um, you know, economists in Germany or, um, you know, homeopathic physicians in China or whatever, they're going to be dealing with the same issues in problem solving when it comes to style that, that we're talking about right now. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's, um, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to, to, to have access to, to that kind of a global audience. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned you had a third uh, version of this or a third round of this coming up. Uh, coming do ha- up. Do you have any dates? No, I would say, though, that uh, by the beginning of the summer, so I okay. would say by June, um, it could be earlier than that, but um, I would say by June, the course will probably be live in a either a four-week format or a six-week format that'll just keep running over and over again and the beauty of MOOCs is you can take them as many times as you want, <laughs> right? And you can drop out in the middle, and um, you know you don't have to pay anything, right? 
Um, so, uh, yeah, we're going to we're we're going to see what happens when we run it in that format. Okay. Well, we will uh, we'll leave a, a link in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, they can go to the uh, Coursera website and check out the information. And I expect to see you all there. <laughs> I'll be in the back of the 150,000, <laughs> raising my hand. <laughs> Very good. Now, we, we talked a, a few episodes back. We were talking about, uh, in an episode we titled Ideas Without Words, we were talking about, you know, maps and, uh, or not maps, but drawings and sketches and how we communicated without uh, writing down words. And one of the things we talked about was mind mapping. Mm-hmm. And, and I ran across a paper that you had written where you analyzed uh, students, engineering students, their 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 mapping uh, tendencies versus their uh, adaptive innovative scale. Uh, uh-huh. what, what, what's the correlation there? So it's 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 you kind of go back to what you were talking about innovation being messy. Yeah, <laughs> it it translates pretty directly when when you're talking about how people express their their thoughts, uh, whether it's a mind map or um, or how they write things, how they write lists. Right. Um, and so you know what we saw and what I see in the in the classroom even now is that the more innovative people. They literally are more free with the way and, and less structured with the way they, they draw things, um, with the way they write things. They pay less attention to correct spelling. They pay less, you know, less attention to grammar. Um, right. they use more pictures. They use fewer words. They use more colors. Um, but in the more adaptive side, you get a more, you know, maybe a more accurate drawing of something you get um, more detail in your mind map more words and more specific kinds of words so you can actually look at the way people you know write on a flip chart or write on a board and you may be able to tell something about their style just by the way they express themselves Hmm. um how their office is organized (laughs) You know, and, and that's what's kind of fun is to start looking around at people and, and, and trying to, to make guesses a little bit about um, what their style might be by how they organize their environment. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, with, with drawing, I think – I don't know that innovators draw more, but they use more, um, they use more, more, more pictures and color in their expression. Hmm. Yeah, okay. it's pretty neat. Interesting. I'm going to have to clean up my drawings. <laughs> my well, stick figures are awfully messy. <laughs> well, we, we talked in that episode about stick figures are enough. You don't need to be an artist. You right. just need to con- be out there and convey the thought and, and, and explain to others what was going on. So, Right. Um, all right. Well, we should we should probably think about uh, uh, wrapping this up so you can uh, head out and, and uh, get on with your evening. Uh, and get back to my MOOC grading. And get back to your <laughs> MOOC grading. Right. Uh, so you, you've been involved uh, on on a couple of sides. You're you've you've had this uh, this area of research and creative thought, and you've you've also uh, you're a professor for an engineering school. Any thoughts where uh, engineering education is headed or should be headed? Well, I think I'm, I'm happy to say that, that I think engineering education is starting to think of engineers, engineering students as more as individuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that people do learn differently 
and they apply things differently and trying as much as they can to take that into account in, in how they, how they teach and how the curricula are, are, are organized, you know, instead of, I see most, mo- most universities are, are really trying to get away from the huge lecture halls right. with hundreds and hundreds of students herded in like cattle and, <laughs> um, you know, trying to give people in more individualized instruction. And I think that's the way we need to go. We're not going to be able to, you can't go to extremes. There's not, there's not enough faculty to do that. But I think that's, that's the best way for everybody to, to get a better education and to stay engaged. You know, we, we want to, we want to keep more students in the engineering program and not lose them along the way. Right. So I, I think that's the way we need to go. And, and I see a lot of activity in that direction, which is heartening. Right. And and how did your MOOC experience play in there? Was it was that a, is that an effective means of teaching? Because I always think of education as being very hard to scale. You know, it's really effective. I think at at engagement. So it's effective at getting people interested in a topic. It may not be the best way to deliver really intensive uh, content in certain areas. I think mm-hmm. certain subjects work better. Okay. At doing that. So it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, but I think it's a great way of, of giving people a chance to experiment with a subject before they decide they want to spend their good hard earned cash, <laughs> um, at the university getting credit. You know, when you're paying a thousand dollars a credit or whatever you're paying or more, wouldn't you like to know ahead of time sure. that you're going to want to stick with the course or stick with the program? Right. So I think it's very effective at, at giving people that helping them make more informed choices about where they invest their money in higher education. Right. And there's certainly any number of interesting courses out there. So there's no oh, lack there's of hundreds of them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <There's no lack. laughs> right. Hundreds of them. Right. Well, Catherine, if uh, somebody should want to get a hold of you uh, or or follow up, they've got questions about uh, your research or or uh, you know. Uh, engineering in general is there mm-hmm. some place we should send them. Um, well, I do have a LinkedIn profile, okay. So you can go look me up on LinkedIn, and um, they could also contact me at my Penn State email, which is kwl three at psu dot edu, and uh, all my email gets transferred there. So um, those are probably the best ways to find me. Okay. And I'd be happy to hear from people. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, we so much appreciate your spending some time with us uh, this, this evening and, and uh, sharing your insights and your, your knowledge. Well, thanks very much for having me. This has been, this has been fun. You've asked me some tough questions. <laughs> Made me think. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's what we're here for. Good. All right. Well, have a good evening. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.